0: So, uh, there are a lot of bad answers about how to live the Christian life. I'm not going to cover all of them, um, but there are lots of books detailing all sorts of ways that you can become a particular kind of Christian, okay? Just go through a Christian bookstore, and you can find book upon book upon book, just, just showing you how to do this, all right? All um, right. Now, you can learn about how to be a more, and these are some, some, some of the ways that you can, you can learn to be a joy-filled Christian or a more discerning Christian or a more praying Christian or a more extreme Christian. And often it's just extreme Christian when you see those. How to be a more spiritually fit Christian, a more gluten-free Christian, true story, a more productive and respected and disciplined and organized and effective Christian, all one title, also how to be a less exhausted Christian after reading the last book you read about how to be a Christian. Yet, the most simple instruction given to us is given to us right here in the beginning of the book of Galatians about how to be a Christian. And he's writing to this community settled uh, in a a Roman province where nobody was really from there, okay? It, It was kind of a somewhat new city in the middle of an ancient land. So Anatolia, kind of east, east and south of Anatolia, in the middle of central Turkey, you know, right in the heart of things, you had uh, this region called Galatia. And Paul is writing to these people that, uh, that he was face-to-face with for a time and, and planting a church and, and laboring with them. And now he's writing a letter to them. How to be a Christian how to continue on in Christianity. So when I think about that, how to do, how to live, how to get started with something, I think about what it was like having a a car that had car trouble from the first time I bought it, my very first car. Now I learned, it had a problem starting, so I learned by trial and error, don't ask how I discovered this, I learned that a small sawn-off broomstick could be used to physically beat the starter while another person turned the key. And then if I did that, eventually the car would start... John's about to freak out in the back, John Williams. He knows all about cars, right? You're gonna have to ask him how this works. I don't know. But I learned that if you do that in the middle of your high school parking lot with really nice cars right next to you and people walking by that you wanna impress, that your car will start Also, you won't have many dates in high school. This is a true story. This is how this would happen. So, So I learned that this is kind of how it works. And I don't know, trial and error, I think I beat on all kinds of things inside that engine, but eventually somehow this led to the starting of the car. So I kept the little broomstick inside the hood and for days and weeks on end, I would beat on the starter in order to start the car. Um, that's a little embarrassing. But anyway, uh, true story. So I find as a pastor that there are similarly odd ways of trying to live the Christian life, just doing whatever works, okay? However, I can kind of put together the, the mix of ingredients in order to follow Jesus. And I find that we have a misunderstanding about the mechanism involved of living that life. We've tried whatever it takes, whatever it is, whether it's try You know, just keep trying. We've tried guilt and emotionalism, lists. Maybe you're the type of person that, you know, for a time maybe you had like a rubber band around your wrist that told you to remember to do something, right? And remember something. You tried comparing yourselves to others, changing others, changing communities. So what Galatians has to offer is a new humanity that's built wholly and completely upon the truth of the gospel. Think about that for a second. A new humanity built on the truth of the gospel. That in itself is a transformative truth, that your humanity, who you are, how you live, what you think is important, how you interact with people, that it can be built, that it can be made resilient, that it can survive by being built on the gospel. So we're going to spend time unpacking that throughout this series about what it looks like to be formed by the gospel into that new human being. But what I find, and the reason why when I read this text, I, I just, the thing that first hits me is that there, there are a lot of people you meet with sore backs and sore shoulders who are attempting to carry the burden of being holy on their own shoulders, on their backs. That they can muscle up under the burden and make it, and make it work, and cover up their sin and mistakes, and find a way to be more holy. And yet when I read this, something that I see that knocks me out is this. Paul's first instruction. Now, first he says, I just want to give you, kind of set the stage here. He says, Paul, an apostle, which really, by the way, if you understood the story of Paul's life and how he moves from one thing to the next, just that first line would be enough preaching for the day, and we'd just stop. Because the kind of God that can make an enemy like Paul into an apostle is the kind of God that can minister grace in my own life. So it's something very encouraging, even from the very beginning. So we learn, Paul says, look, I'm an apostle, not because men thought it was a good idea, right? But through Jesus Christ, our God and Father, he has to say that. Paul has to continue to validate that. Just like if you were an ex-felon and you went into a new community and you tried to get a job, you'd have to tell people, I was once a felon, right? Here's why, here's my story. And Paul, in similar ways, says, I'm an apostle because of God. Because those who knew Paul would have known this is the guy that killed people like us. So when he says, I'm an apostle, he has to say, I'm an apostle by God. Not just because there are all kinds of people who are saying, yeah, I'm an apostle too. We're all apostles, right? I mean, this was a common thing in that day and age, people claiming to be huge teachers and apostles. But because Paul knew his story was so utterly compelling, that he had to frame it in light of what God had done because there's no other way this happens. And I just want to tell you as we dig into this, part of what we'll learn as we dig into Galatians is that you must be similarly impressed by the story of your own grace received from God. You can't get to healthy spiritually. You can't get to healthy as a Christian without similar amazement about the fact that God has brought you here. Okay? So so he starts off saying that, and then he just gives us very simple instruction. He tells us something that we most need to know. Before he gets into, because, you know, if you kind of scan down to verse 6, man, he starts hitting hard immediately. So what does Paul tell us so that he can then tell us what we need to know about how to live the gospel correctly? He first has to say this in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God sends his love. And anyone, any preacher, any person that tries to tell you how to follow Jesus without first starting with the fact that God very deeply, powerfully loves his people and favors them is doing you wrong. Any process of trying to be a Christian, any process of trying to be a disciple, any Bible study that wants to tell you, now here's how you become a Christian and doesn't build it based on the grace and peace you've received from God, you need to turn and run away. This is where Christianity begins. Grace and peace received from God. So the question is, what exactly does it mean to receive that grace and peace? What is that? So we use the word grace a lot. You know, we're going to sing later on amazing grace. We talk about grace in a way that, that, uh, that expresses Uh, a a nobility of movement, right? Somebody has real grace when they move. Grace has never been used to describe my movements in any kind of way, but some of you may have experienced what that's like. So they have grace as they interact and as they move. But grace might also, you know, we, we tend to think of it as, well, it's the thing that you do at dinner, you say grace. Well, what that means ultimately is we express that everything we have and everything we receive is by the favor and the goodness of God. This is what it means to have grace from God. It is unmerited favor, unearned love from God. Unearned love. This is falling out of bed into joy and beauty that you didn't earn. And if you've been alive any period of time in this world and and you have enough cognitive skills to put the pieces together, you recognize that that love is not normal. Even the most committed lovely couples, you look at them and you just you want to be just like them. They're the most wonderful couple I've ever met, right? Like me and my wife, I mean, clearly, right? But other people too that you might know who have wonderful marriages and wonderful relationships or wonderful friendships, and you look and you say, how do they, how do, they do it? Well, There's still a degree of merit that goes on in that relationship, no matter how beautiful it is. There's still a piece of that that says, here's why I'm here. There's something about you that makes me want to be here with you. But in Christ, this is different. Grace says, you are not the reason why I love you. Your merit is not the reason why I accept you, why I favor you. So when Paul says grace to you, he's immediately immediately kind of clearing the scorecard. He's saying, you receive from God favor and it's nothing that you've done. Man, I need to hear that as I begin to walk through what it means to be a Christian. I have to know that I have favor from God that's not based on how well I'm doing this week in my quiet times of praying or whether I've been a particularly good friend to someone or a good pastor. I need to hear this. Grace, this is what grace looks like. It's the fairy tale that's too good to be true. We're the beast. I just went to Disney, so I'm sorry. This is going to happen. We are the beast who has been loved truly, genuinely, and made into a prince. We're saved by beauty in our beastliness. Grace is that true fairy tale. This is what Paul's saying. God sends to you, Christian, the truth that you are his own beloved. You know, in cinders, like Cinderella. But when 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 the clock strikes 12, you know, when the clock strikes midnight, you're not turning into a pumpkin or the coach or whatever. I'm not clear on all of these fairy tales. But the reality is, The grace of God is this real and true fairy tale. It is that kind of love that's truly unmerited and is transformative for us. That takes us from being unlovely and being made into a lovely and beautiful person by that love, not by our own merit. So this is a part, this is a part of the Christian story. And it has to be a part of your Christian story in order for you to grow in grace. If you try to do this by saying, if I just keep doing this, one day I'll be dignified and one day I'll be beautiful. One day God will love me. If I keep doing this, you cannot get there from here. You must start on the path first, the grace of God received. He has to love me based on nothing in me. I have to have that unmerited favor, which means I also can't break it. I can't mess it up. Now, we don't know what to do with that, right? Because again, we, we, we don't understand how that works. We don't have those kinds of relationships typically. But it means that we're beloved by God in an irrevocable and unbreakable kind of way. If we didn't build it, then we can't break it, right? The illustration I used, used to always give to my students I'd say, this is good news. Because if we were walking on a path and we were kind of coming upon a, a, a huge gorge in the ground and I said, I built this bridge, this rope bridge, let's go. Then people who know me would say, I don't wanna do that. I don't want to walk over that, right? Because they would look and they would say, I know your skill set and it's not that. I want an engineer. I want somebody who's skilled. I want somebody who's got the qualification. And what Jesus does is he says, I love you and I'm qualified to say that I love you and I'm qualified to say that I'll never let you go. I can do that. So I don't build it. Christ does. Christ builds that bridge from me to him. So before we kind of get our theology straight, or our practice straight, before we attempt to do anything more, we are greeted with favor from God. You have to recognize that right here. Favor from God comes first. Now, instead of, uh, you know, all of these concerns we might have about what this looks like, how we live, you know, what, what effect does this have on the Christian church? This really is the secret sauce to the Christian church. This really is the way that the Christian church still exists that the people in it are there by grace, right? It, it, the, the Christian church is a little bit like a wedding reception. I'm sorry, this is two dancing illustrations in like four weeks, okay? So deal with it, I apologize. But you know, at the wedding reception, we have that feeling, there, there are all kinds of groups of people. Some of you are thinking, does anybody like me here? Do I belong here? Do I know anyone here? Am I dressed right? You know, do I belong here? And then somebody might ask you to dance, like your wife who always wants to dance at these things. And you have to say, okay, I will dance. But when you say, okay, I will dance, you're also thinking about the fact that there are people like me out there who are like, man, look at that guy dance, right? So you instantly feel that feeling like I'm being judged. I'm how do I do this? How do I live here? How do I, how do I merit my belonging in this room? Maybe you're a really good dancer and everybody's like, I'm glad that person's here. Or maybe you're a really bad dancer and people are like, I'm really glad that person's here because they make me look good, right? They make me look good. Well, in Christ, he says all of you in your bad dancing and your little kicks and your juts and the stuff you try to do to dance, right? That all belongs within the kingdom of God because you've received his grace, which means that you have the freedom to enjoy the world in which you've been placed. You have the freedom to enjoy his community, the church. And it means that you don't feel it. You should never have to feel like it's being ripped away from you because you're a poor Christian performer. Instead, you belong. When Paul starts with grace and peace, he does that because he knows it's the only way that the people can actually stay and listen to what he has to say next. Without grace and peace, it's too hard. Without grace and peace, it's impossible. So here's what Paul's doing. He says, "Now let me give you, let me tell you, grace and peace." And he does that because receiving grace from God kind of unlocks our ability to obey and to follow Him because we know we're accepted. We know we have that good news. That's the good news. So no longer do we have to be the people of good accomplishments, and this is the the reason why we're calling this. Uh, this uh, series, What We Are. You, you aren't the people of good accomplishments, good families, good houses, good, a good face, good body, good health, good bank account people, but you're good news people. It's incredible freedom in that. You are accepted, you are there based on the fact that you've received the good news from God and that unlocks our ability to obey rightly and to follow him rightly. It makes sense that the very next thing that Paul does is he says, you're off track. We'll get there next week. So the beauty of the text is this, that there's grace and peace received from God. And we'll talk about peace in a moment, but here's what's really cool. Let's go back to the beginning of the story, just for a second. Paul, the apostle, he is the one that qualifies us. He's the one who says, look, because of my life, I can tell you that you receive grace and peace from God. So he doesn't just say, yeah, it's grace and peace. Sure, you should trust it. Go ahead and follow it. He says, Look at my life. I'm here. And we've received this incredible grace from God. It's the only reason I can be here, therefore you can be here. And then he talks in places like 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 8. Look at the, I mean, just look at the way he talks about the way grace changes things. He says, God is able to make all grace abound in you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. You may abound in every good work. Think about that for a second. Here's how he describes grace. Having all sufficiency, being all you need to be to belong. In all things, at all times, persevering no matter what happens, grace follows you. You may abound in every good work. Grace equips us. Grace sends us out to live. Grace gives us good things to do and the ability to do it. You don't construct those things. You live into those things. You don't create those things. You receive those things from God. So the anxiety about performance as a Christian is taken away. And the falseness, the fakiness of trying to act like you don't make the mistakes you make and then running away from obedience because it's too hard. I can't, I can't follow Jesus because what if everybody finds out how much of a disaster I am? There's freedom to follow God. There's freedom to live differently, to receive his care because of the grace he gives us. Grace, grace is not the only thing we're sent here. We're also sent peace. Now, this is a category that we tend to read as, you know, serenity. Get peace. You know, be unafflicted, be unworried, be unbothered. One of my favorite uh, writers talks about when he was in a a hotel room in, I think it was Tokyo, he's in a hotel room and there was a a small kind of fire in the hotel, very small. And he was walking up to uh, a a little map on the back of the door that tells you, you know, where to go in the, in, in case of a fire, he actually wanted to follow the evacuation plan. And he looks at it and the instruction was, when you are engulfed in flames, here's what you do right? And there's a little bit of a translation issue. But his point was to say, if I am engulfed in flames, I'm not stopping to say, now, how do I get out of here? You know, let me just follow. If you are engulfed in flames, there's no option at that point. You're running, you're doing something, right? And his point was to, and his point and my point is to say that this is not the kind of peace that we receive here. This is not what peace looks like, all right? Peace is not pretending that you're not engulfed in flames. Peace is not being unafflicted. This kind of view of peace doesn't work in real life, you know? It, it, it wouldn't have worked for the apostles either. If peace is just serenity and calm and no anxiety, then we don't need the gospel, right? You know, we, we need like essential oils and city planning. That's what we need, right? We don't need the gospel anymore. Well, we need one to three vacations a year and a healthy diet. But if peace means the absence of anxiety or grief or wrestling through your own life with some kind of fear and trembling, then we better not read... The prison epistles of Paul, because he tells us, you know, if if those things aren't allowed, if we aren't allowed to struggle, if we aren't allowed to walk through anxiety and fear. In the prison epistles, he tells us that he struggles with despair. Maybe we shouldn't read the Psalms where the author says, maybe he'd be better off dead. Peace gives us a proper context for anxiety so that it doesn't grind us into dust. Peace isn't that ability to just sit there when you're engulfed in flames. Peace is the ability to know in whom you can trust and to trust his future for us. Peace in the scriptures is this really weird category that we don't really have great words for, but it means being made whole. When you're falling apart, peace means that something is going to put you back together. What Paul is saying is he's saying, I want you to have grace, love from God. He's saying, I also want you to have wholeness from God. I want you to have healing from God. I want you to be able to trust God. That's what peace looks like. Trusting God to make us whole, to make us flourish. Before we jump into Galatians, we have to know that God gives us both of these things, grace and peace, love and wholeness. Ephesians 2, it's really an incredible statement here. Uh, He himself, Christ himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. this is how Paul uses peace in Ephesians. He makes us both one by the giving of himself. He puts us back together by giving him, by giving him to us. We are made whole. First Thessalonians 5, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, make you whole. May his peace make you whole completely. May your whole spirit and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace makes us back together again. If you are in a place, and all of us are in some way, shape, or form all the time, But some of us feel it more acutely other times. If you are in that place where you feel like you are just, you are a yard sale. You know, if you've ever skied and people thought you ski ski by someone, they've lost it, you know, they've got skis over here and equipment over here. It's like, wow, that's a real yard sale. If you are a yard sale at this point in your life, for one reason or another, the gospel encourages you by saying that God can take a person who is in pieces and put them back into one piece that God gives us the means to do that. And that through the belief in the gospel, he begins to do that. So we can't, we can't go anywhere in the gospel until we know that. He's telling us, look, the, the path ahead is going to be rocky. And looking at our lives and being honest about where we are maybe with Christ. But no matter how much it rips us apart in thinking about those things and examining our lives, God himself can put us back together. There's a couple of brief ways I want you to apply this as we we kind of study this together, okay? If we become good news people, that means if we are so impressed, if we are so moved that the Spirit is so transformative to us that our primary identity is that we are people of the good news. If, If we grasp the gospel, and this is part of Paul's argument, then good news will be everywhere in your life. Good news people are not neutral factors, okay? We aren't people that you can like... They can come or go, no impact, you know, zero impact on their world. We are looking for a footprint (laughs) as Christians, not to to be neutral in the way that we interact in the world, where you live, where you work, where you go to school. If we are good news people, good news goes there. Those places are affected. Your neighbor, get this, your neighbor should be grateful that you live in their neighborhood. I, I think at the very basic level of the gospel Your neighbor should be grateful. Your coworkers should be grateful. Maybe they know the reason why you are who you are, maybe they don't. But they ought to be blessed by your presence there. Your kids and your family, your friends. We're not neutral as Christians, as people of the good news. So I want to just encourage you to do this start with a little bit of an audit this time of year for audits. Start with an audit. Ask Christian friends friends, or spouses or coworkers, people on your team, do I serve people well? Am I driven only by my own agenda? Am I generous? Find out if you bring good news into your world. Don't just look internally into you. Think about the people that you interact with. Am I a generous person? Am I good to have around? Maybe they'll actually answer you honestly. That'd be maybe scary. Second one, two of two. Good news people produce gracious followers of Jesus. People of the gospel. Those people that follow them, that interact with them, that are transformed by them. They become gracious followers of Jesus, not of us. Which means that uh, God's love and God's healing ought to be the thing that transforms people. They want to follow Jesus rather than being frazzled, desperate to please fans of yours. Now, you might run into this. You might have friends who've learned deeply from you. Who wanna, they want to be you, right? They want to be you. At least they want to be social media you, whatever that is, okay? But additionally, not just, not just kind of that world, but what about those of you, what about if you have kids? What about if you one day want to have kids? There's that temptation to make our kids into images of us. I want them to be me. You know, I want my kids to remind people of me. We've got to be driven toward helping them to be fans and followers of Jesus. And you know where that happens? It happens when your story is one of grace. When your story is grace, I've been changed by God. It's not me, it's Christ in me. It's part of the story that begins to make disciples. I want to say it this way. And this is where we'll stop this morning. If you want to understand, we're greeted with two things, all right, as we begin here. God's love and God's healing. It is God who loves you. It's the work of God that makes you whole. This is where we have to begin. It is God who loves you. It is God who makes you whole. Through Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father.